every, I think you have to rethink everything from muting the TV to what are we eating for dinner to wh how do we vacation? Particularly as a white person growing up, there's just this really deep-seated sense of entitlement. And I mean that on a really every day, all the time, like the way we clean our house is the right way to clean it. The way we educate is the right way to educate. The way we eat is the right way to eat. The our healthcare is the right healthcare, like all those little things. For me, I think the turning point was having a, a, a mentor who was from a completely different uh, background than me. And that blew my mind because I had to submit to somebody whose worldview is so different than mine that it was at that time when I, I understood the depth of what I didn't know. <laughs> and, and for me, that, that, that was a pivotal time, you know, to really understand, um, to begin to understand what I didn't understand. That America is a place where all things are possible. That is some group of people, thousands. Describe as a demon. I hate you, naturally. No, 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 not God bless America. God damn America, that's in the Bible. Welcome to Profane Faith a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Welcome back, welcome back everyone. Profane faith, that's right, we're doing it, we're hitting it. My goodness my goodness well welcome back this your boy as always daniel white hodge here chilling and listen uh, i just want to thank the folks my listeners um it's kind of hard to believe you know we've i've i've only been at this uh at least in this episode um since about august it is november so you can do the math there on the that time frame and it's already kind of causing a stir i was at a conference this uh last week and somebody was like man i just i just want to come sit at your table because you know i listen to profane faith and i had another person tell me man your podcast is great and man keep it coming so yo if you're listening thank you so much keep keep the comments coming keep the feedback coming i mean it's been great thank you so much for those of you who are listening faithfully and have heard every episode um i know my man dr gabe Bias is out there dr gabe and his uh and his wife dr karina v is two doctors in the house they out there, they faithfully listening every week. And um, I just want to say thank you, y'all. And thank you, Gabe, for promoting it. I got some other folks promoting as well. So, again, thank you. And we're going to get the Vs's on um, real soon, too. I got, I got, I'm got, i lining folks up. I'm lining them up. I'm telling y'all, we're going to be going in. So, as always, like, share, whitehodgepodcast.com. Uh, we're on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, I don't necessarily have a Twitter set up directly for the podcast i know some people do that and i i just don't <laughs> one of us just God, I'm, I'm a little lazy if i'm honest um and i i i tend to tweet from my own at dan white hodge twitter account um and that's just you know again that's just really a personal preference i think i can get a lot out just under my own but it's all connected back to you know whitehodge.com uh, which is my main website and um i just didn't see the need to get a, yet another twitter account and try to develop followers and all that stuff like that so we're on facebook so you can go to the page and i try to give updates there and all that and that in that viewer reader or readership viewership whatever you want to call it, those followers those are that's growing as well so i'm just kind of just blown away because this is just something that started in my mind about a year ago and i started putting uh meat on the bones here over the summer that was my summer project as opposed to writing um this is my project and so uh this is like writing right um it's in just another avenue so again thank you really appreciate it and uh I'm, I'm excited i'm really excited um so this week the theme that we're dealing with and looking at um really over the next two weeks is like what does white allyship look like <laughs> oh my goodness and this is really kind of a part one segment, if you will. I want to definitely return to this because I think white allyship is something that is really being called into question and really coming in, um, you know, from, from with a side eye from, from, from many of us who are people of color because we're kind of like, whoa, what 
the heck does this mean, right? And some of the most lethal racism that I know I've experienced has been from folks who quote unquote call themselves allies or, you know, white liberals. And I've had, you know, plenty of folks. Last week's episode with um, my man Josiah, you know, we were talking about that, right? So, y'all, we got we, we to have this conversation, right? <laughs> we have a lot of conversations, but this one in particular, right? So, I thought, what better person to start this off with than with my wife? Oh! Yeah, my wife, Emily White Hodge. And for those of you wondering, my wife is racially white. Ethnically, she's got Scottish, and German, and English in her. But racially, she is white. And you think, oh my, oh my gosh, like, damn, what's going on? I mean, I'm open to comments and open to conversations. And particularly, what does it mean to be in an inter-ethnic relationship in this day and age? Um... So I wanted to start it off because I I think she's got a lot of great things to say. Now, granted, I know I am biased. I am. <laughs> she is my wife. Right. But I do believe the the conversation we're going to have this week, you know, in regards to that, really, it, it, it means something. And the thing, I'll say this, you know, I think when it comes to white supremacy, whiteness, I think there's definitely those are definitely things that I stand against and push back very hard on. Um, I think looking at the, the, the people, the individuals, um, you know, it's interesting because it's given me a different perspective, obviously, being in an inter-ethnic, interracial, however you want to define it, uh, relationship. Um, we celebrated our 16-year anniversary here on November 3rd, 2017, and, you know, I... I love my wife and I care for her and I respect her and I think she's beautiful. And I, you know, we have grown so much in our relationship, especially over the last decade. And so, you know, you just can't overlook that. And yes, there are issues of race. Yes, there are issues of white privilege and white supremacy. Um, And those are some things that, you know, we have both committed to engaging with and, trying to stamp out and purge out where we find them and where we see them. And so that is not easy. And I know there's the whole issue with, you know, oh man, but you black, you come eating make somebody else black. I mean, look here, here's the thing. I get that. Um, one of the things I always tell folks, you know, and this is by no means an excuse or anything, but one of the things that come up, you know, this, this, this doesn't come up a lot, uh, at least to my face. Uh, but you know, I tell, look, one, you can you can never tell your heart who to love and how to love, right? Um, and you know, secondly, this is who I truly feel God has brought me. Now, before you you know you're like Dan, that's some evangelical language right there. Okay, you know what I I give I give you that I may give you that, <laughs> but here's the thing. I I still well one I still believe there's a God. I do believe God is working on behalf of something us yes possibly um but nonetheless i do believe um that god is working we have connected with god we have prayed and i feel that connection um with my wife and she feels it with me and so we have been together we've produced a quite a young and great daughter which by the way i did have her on the podcast so i'm going to be putting that episode together that's that is a hilarious episode so i'll be so stay tuned for that uh and lastly i do believe that you know our relationship has been kind of an example not that we've you know tried to live it like that not that we've tried to um you know create ourselves like oh we're an example no you you can't sustain that for 16 years you got to get real you got to get deal with your stuff but it's just somehow been that way. Like, you know, how do you deal with interacting? Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's just easy. You know, homogeneity is always easy. It's easy in church services. It's easy in schools. It's easy. And it's just easier. I mean, yeah, you have your issues and whatnot. But, you know, race tends to not necessarily always be one of them. That being said, it's, um, you know, our relationship has come under, you know, some tension. Right. Over the last um, year, you know, when it, as it relates to. The new president, uh, just the unsurmountable um, racist acts that are going on. So I wanted to have, you know, spend a couple of weeks looking at what what do white allies do? Next week, we got another brother coming on, white white brother. And, you know, he is going to be talking about some stuff as well. And so I'm going to, uh, you know, we'll get that up. But this week, I want to bring my wife on because uh, I thought it was time. I, I always wanted her to do, I wanted her to be in some of the, the initial episodes. We just never had time, if you can believe that. 
uh, having a daughter and just both of us working and everything. So this week I wanted to go in and have that conversation and talk a little bit more about what does that mean to be a white ally? What does that mean? And is that, and this is the thing, I was at a great conference this week. It was the, the Fuller's Missiological Lectures. If you don't know what that is, you just you just look that up. Missiology is really the study of like missions and theology together. Um, and so this, this year's theme uh, was on race, theology, and mission. Um, it's, it's amazing stuff. I'm going, I'm, I'm coming back to that. Trust me. I, that, that, that was, that was an, it was an amazing week or just a, a few days. Um, and there was just, I think there was something good that happened as a result of that. I think some people have come together and we're trying to figure out what that means. But that aside, um, I, uh, one of the, the conversations that came up was, you know, how do you, how do we define allies? You know, what does an ally look like? And one of the things that, uh, I thought was very interesting and fascinating is that, you know, much like a PhD, you can't just self-proclaim allyship. That has to be bestowed upon you, right? You can't just take one course in a PhD program and be like, oh, I'm a doctor now. I'm good. I got it. No, you got to go earn that. And so I do believe that for white folks. I do believe that that has to be, you can't just come out and say, oh, I'm an ally now. Oh, okay. All right. What's what's your street cred, right? And so part of that is with my wife is having that conversation because we've been having these conversations since day one um, on race and of course, gender and all the intersections of that. So without any further ado, here is my wife and I having a great conversation in regards to race. Check it out. Oh, and marriage and love and all that good stuff. <laughs> Check it out. Welcome back folks to profane faith. Here we are in the lab. And when I say we, I am here with my mate, my partner oh dear <laughs> of uh almost 16 17 16 years november 3rd 2001 i guess 16 16 years. good math there we go yes <laughs> emily white hodge you guys have heard all these episodes with different guests and i thought wait i have a brilliant brilliant person sitting right here and why not take advantage of that so welcome to the show Thanks. Yes, yes. So here we are. We got some pets down here, as always. We got Scooter and the best dog ever. <laughs> That's right. Gigi the black cat was down here a few minutes ago as well. Um, well, let's start off with just the question that I ask all our guests. What is your faith and spiritual journey? What has brought you to this point in time? Well, let's see. So I was told that when I was three, I did what all good evangelicals do. I asked Jesus into my heart when I was three, which I, I say tongue in cheek, but I really, um, as long as I can remember, I have always known that God loved me and have always felt loved by God. Um, and so I take that actually as a gift. So even though yeah. I'm not certain that asking Jesus into your heart is everyone's path, um, that was what it was for me. So, uh, attended church all growing up attended a really fantastic church a mega church in minnesota mm. very well known and right. uh had really terrific uh training spiritual training uh so much so that it inspired me to get my degree in theology and youth ministry okay we're at uh, bethel university oh yes bethel <laughs> yeah, and while I was there, uh, I had the opportunity to do some service in the city. And as a result of that, uh, I would say that my faith journey took a sharp left. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Uh, I didn't know that's what it was at the time, mm. uh, but I fell in love with the city. That's the way I always describe it. It was like a love affair, and I sort of felt mm. as though... This whole part of the world. I mean, I grew up in the suburbs. Like, I was the classic suburban white kid. Um, I had one Asian friend growing up. Oh, she was Vietnamese. All right. All right. Chan. Chan. All right. Chan. <laughs> um, Where are you at, Chan? Literally had zero friends of color. I never had a teacher of color. I never. I mean, we really didn't spend any time in the city. There was really no need. I mean, between school and after school activities and church, it was all in the suburbs. So when I, you know, started volunteering in the city, it, it really, it rocked my world. And uh, my parents had always been huge fans of, 
you know, international students and missions and all those things. So I had always had a love for cultures, but I was never exposed to the very rich array of cultures that were literally 15 minutes from my doorstep. So I sort of had a, a, not a crisis of faith, but really a broadening of my faith at that time. Okay. So for the next, uh, gosh, six, seven years, I, I, after college, I moved into the city. I, ironically, was a youth pastor at a small African-American Baptist church. Um, Why would you say, why would you say ironically? Well, I mean, what white girl who's totally ignorant and doesn't <laughs> doesn't really know what she's doing? Like, why did anyone think that was a good idea? <laughs> okay. Like, why did the senior pastor ask me to do that? I don't know. He was a lovely man and he believed in me. And I thank God for that because he was one of my first African-American mentors. But All right. Um, All right. That's good. Why anyone thought that was a good idea is sort of like looking back at the time, it was great. I thought it was fantastic. And of course, back then I thought I knew far more than I actually knew. So, you know, ignorance is bliss. Um, yeah. And then from there, you know, moved into this city. <laughs> we are in the lab in case y'all <laughs> forgot. That was Scooter, that the was best dog Scooter, ever. That's right. He's regulating down He's here. regulating down here with Greta, girl. So, oh, and there's the other one. <laughs> geez, we're a mess. We're a zoo. We'll yeah, just we say are. That. We are. Um, yeah, so moved into the city. And, and at that point, I mean, God really just started to broaden my faith. I spent some time overseas. I spent time learning Spanish. I attended a Spanish-speaking church. The neighborhood that I lived in was predominantly African-American and First Nations. And so I was surrounded by people who were different than me, but who were passionate followers of Jesus, but had a very different worldview than me. And of course, having drunk the Kool-Aid of white evangelical suburban Christianity, I didn't even realize that I had a worldview. I just thought Mm. that I had theology, period that I had the theology, that there was only one theology, that there was only one way to express faith, and that I knew what that is. So, yeah, so then I spent, I mean, well, let's be honest. I mean, I've spent the last, gosh, that was in 99, so I've spent the last 18 years, uh, no more than that, really. I guess I graduated in 95, so I guess it's been like 23, 24 years where I have given my life to cross-cultural relationships for the simple fact that I feel like the more that I understand another culture, the closer I am to God. And I remember the first time that I was in Guatemala and, uh, I had been studying Spanish and of course I was flailing my way through it. I went by myself, wanted to learn the language so that I could communicate with my neighbors back on the south side of Minneapolis. And I felt like a total child because I couldn't really understand and keep up with the language and whatever. But I remember the first time at church when I understood communion in Spanish Mm, and I, it was like a pivotal moment in my life because I understood God from a different point of view. And I understood that the God that I served was the same God as the folks in Guatemala and how beautiful that was to me that God was so much bigger than what I thought God was. Hmm. Yeah, I know. I remember, you know, you talking about that and just, you know, having that experience and whatnot. Um, I mean, what was, you know, you, so you talked a little bit about, you know, just growing up in a mega church and yeah, I know that church was the church we were married in. Um, what was some of the training that you got? Cause you always said you had good Bible training. You were. Yeah, really good. We had a whole, I mean, it was a whole program. I mean, from the time we were little, there was Sunday school and it was all based in the Bible and it was all, you know, I mean, we did a ton of memorizing Bible verses and things that I think are just phenomenal practices for anyone um, in any version of spirituality is to really know what you believe. Um, but it was really in, in high school. Um, there was a series that our youth pastor did that was called So What? Um mm. And the whole premise was, you know, so you graduate, so you go to college, so you get a good job, so you get paid a lot, so you get a big house, so what? 
And that really impacted me and that solidified for me that I wanted to live a life that wasn't just suburban comfortable. Like I wanted to live a life that pushed me and that there was meaning in it. And that's not to say that people who live in the suburbs don't have meaningful life. That's not what I'm saying. But for me, it was saying, I don't just want the status quo, whatever that means for whatever context people are in, but I want to push myself and I want to know God and I want to experience God in many ways and in many different facets. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know, man, so the nineties you were, you were with young life and, um, yep. I was with young life. And what was the other one before? I always forget. Oh, um, interchange. interchange. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. What, um, if you care sharing, what was, what was that experience like and just being, cause I'm assuming, cause I know when I met you, you were with young life and you were, you know, working, in predominantly African-American neighborhoods and communities, you know, what was, how was that like? And what, given your experience and knowledge then? Yeah, good question. So let's see. So I started out in college where there really was no oversight and we were just left to our own devices. And so (laughs) we just volunteered and thought we were, you know, do-gooder white kids coming in to save the city, right? So yeah. That was my original thought. And then I moved on to Interchange, um, which is a really beautiful organization. Um, The particular chapter that I was a part of um, was led by uh, a Caucasian man um, and his wife. And, you know, I based on my experience with the cultures, um, there was just a lot there that did not resonate with me because I felt like. I felt like there there was not an understanding and a respect for the culture, mm. um, and that was not okay with me. Um, it was, and this is certainly not to say that this is everyone's experience uh, in Interchange, because I happen to have some other folks at other chapters who had very different experiences, so it's certainly not a sweeping generalization, but to say that when I wanted to throw a party for one of the folks that we were mentoring, um, she was pregnant and and having a child. And I was told not to throw a party because we didn't want to celebrate babies out of wedlock. Mm. And to me, at that point in my history, understanding the context of where we were and what was going on and all of the different pieces of that, it just, it felt like a punitive spirituality. And I, Mm. um, I'm very much a fan of freedom in Christ and that freedom is rich and it's wide and it's joyful and it's open and it's big. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all right. So let's, so this is good. I just gives, gives us a good framework. Obviously I know all this, but I think it's, I think it's important for the listeners and particularly with your situation. I know you said a whole bunch, Oh, I don't have anything to say. I don't know what to say, but I think, I think you personally have a lot to say because of your experience of what you do, what we've both been through since we've been married. You know, I shared a little bit on my story about, you know, after I met you, my entire community collapsed uh well it started collapsing but it didn't collapse until we actually got married um for those of you listening you can go back to episode one uh where i talk about that and soundcloud it's it's the full version there the full two hour version of that um thing but i think when i first met you i mean i know i mean i just be honest i mean you you were the first white woman i'd ever dated ever Right. And so, well, that's good because you're the first African-American. Ah, there we go. (laughs) Great. First on all accounts. So, I mean, I remember, you know, we remember, because I'm sure people could be like, how did you guys meet? How did you guys meet? I remember, you know, it was, I had just gotten back from the, uh, Iraqi war the first oh, Dan one does and this that- all the time he tries to tell this story that's complete garbage so we were at a young oh, life man. training in Colorado and yeah. uh he was in front of a group uh speaking Spanish to his grandmother totally cracking me up he was trying to get her to bark like a dog but he was totally <laughs> cheating because he was doing it in Spanish and since at that point I I spoke Spanish fluently I was super <laughs> I was totally dying of laughter and so yeah so then I took the opportunity to sit next to him at the next session. Yes. Yes. And then I saw her and I was like, oh, all right. Uh, 
there's some potential there. I put my cologne on. You put some jeans on, too. You, you can't see my eye rolls. <laughs> I was just saying, hey, she hooked it up. Well, I bought it hook, line, and sinker, clearly, because oh, here we are man, 17 right. years later. That's right. I didn't even want to go to that conference. I was so done with conferences and trying to meet people, and and then you came along. And then I figured I was with my friend Ray, and then I remember him saying, oh, man, I was a nice guy, because we hung out that night. We're watching football game. And I remember, I remember Jerry Mann saying that we had to keep the, the room to the hotel room open or something like that. Because he was like, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta do your, you, you gotta keep a, what is he guys keep your respectability, Reverend? <laughs> if you guys know who Jerry Mann is, you know he speaks just like that. But my point being is, is that I, you know, Ray asked me, he's like, what do you think about it? I was like, oh man, she's great. I said, man, but she's in Twin Cities. I didn't even know my geography at that time. I didn't even know where Minnesota was. I was like, where is that state at again? I had to look. He used to call it Minneapolis. Yeah, oh, man, Minneapolis, right. <laughs> And so I was like, yeah, but it's great. But, you know, it's not like I'm going to marry her. And I was just like, man, you know what? I'm just going to put all my stuff out there. And I sent you a card. I put my little um, cologne smell in it. So when you open it up, you know, it smell like me. Um, And those were great times. I mean, I hated the long distance. And this was, oh, my gosh. This was before. these. This generation don't know nothing. They don't know nothing about no struggle. Because we had to do calling cards, y'all. Calling cards. There was no nationwide long distance there was no facetime there was no skype i know people have that oh my god how did you live (laughs) was there a life before this but i remember you know i hated that but i loved being with you and i remember um the first time i brought you back we were still dating and i remember not wanting you to take i didn't want to take you to my community because i already knew you weren't seventh day Adventist. you were white you outspoken and those were all great things that i that i that i loved about you but I knew that my community, even then, that they weren't going to be very accepting of that. And so, I don't know if you want to share a little bit about just that time, just transitioning, coming from a place where you felt like, man, this is great. And of course, it's different now than you know than it was then. But I don't know. I mean, if you care, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about that part of the story, the other side of the story of when we first got married and living in Marina. Yeah, well, it was all very ironic because (laughs) I was in Minneapolis and, you know, people tend to think of Minneapolis like, oh, it's Midwestern, it's probably very conservative and whatever, but I was in the city and the city is Democrat, it's blue, you know, so I was used to that sort of mentality, you know, all Mm -hmm. of my friends were people of color, you know, I had been in the urban environment, so I was just very comfortable with all of that. So when when we got married <laughs> and Dan told me about our place, it was like, oh, yeah, I'm doing, you know, Young Life Urban in Seaside, California. So I'm like thinking, you know, Metropolis, whatever. And I moved there and literally there were cows in the back pasture. And I was like, what have I gotten myself into? And then at the beginning, you know, I was doing a little bit of work for Young Life, but mostly uh, I was teaching tennis and different things and was just uh, taken to a really hard space because, you know, to me, Jesus is all about love. It's all about freedom. It's all about inclusion and inviting people into the circle of God's love. And so to be disowned... And away from my people um, in Minnesota, uh, on the other side of the country. I mean, frankly, I didn't know if we were going to make it because, you know, uh, your crew was so intent on us being separated. And to me, I couldn't get with it. You know, they they wanted me to have a smaller worldview. And I just I simply couldn't based on my experience. I mean, being at that point exposed to many different cultures, many different experiences, multiple languages and different things. I couldn't go backwards, you know. So it was this, it was a really scary time um because I didn't know if, if we were going to make it at that point or not. Yeah, no, I mean I remember. I mean it was it was definitely a at the time, you know, well really in you know in my life, I mean it's one of the most, you know, challenging times in my life because it's like for me my theological highway was coming apart and now I feel like, okay, there was kind of more of a crisis. I have more of a cushion. I have more space. I'm older. I've been through something like that. But this is the first time really I, I had a crisis where people who I loved and respected were now telling me, you're wrong. You're wrong for marrying her. You're, you, you shouldn't be listening to her. I remember, you know, people saying, no, you're, she's leading you down the wrong, the path of, of destruction. And, um, you know, all the little things that, that people say and judge, 
you and just the really the the vileness of of what religion and denominations can do um we persevered we we made it a lot of good therapy um good times yes yes good (laughs) good times you got me through grad school a phd we had mahalia in 2006 man it was crazy because i was underemployed and unemployed and we're trying to pay bills and then we're homeless i mean i'm not trying to necessarily relive the whole thing i'm trying to give folks some context again if you want to hear more episode one um talk about that but I think I'd like to talk a little bit about just, you know, particularly the sociopolitical arena that we find ourselves in. I mean, um, we got Trump in presidency, and I talk a lot about him on this show in, in regards to it's it's bad, man. It's like really bad. But you have family members that voted for him, if you don't mind me saying. Should we get into that a little bit? It's up to you. Your oh. call. Oh, no. Okay. You're the host. Oh, my goodness. Well... <laughs> In that case. Um, well, I mean, I just think it's important because I think your story is unique. I mean, you were in an interethnic relationship. We have, a, you know, as they say, a mixed kid. And I think this election season, though, brought out all of the the subtleties that go with racism. And they weren't no longer subtleties. They were like, blam, right here. And so, I don't know. I mean, eight years of Obama, but then you've got now, we've got this. And so... I don't know. I mean, for you, what was it, you know, going, you know, in November last year, um, what were you thinking, you know, when he was voted in and having family members who were like, man, thank God that he's that, you know, he's our president now. We don't have a this baby killer, this baby killer who's probably not even an American with a wife that's a transvestite. I don't know if you heard that one either. That's crazy stuff that they're saying about um, been saying about um, Michelle Obama. But anyways. Some thoughts on that. And feel free to reflect and connect back. I know I'm leaving a lot of context out, us living in the basement of your parents' house, us getting kicked out of your sister's house, (laughs) me getting arrested in August of 2011. It's crazy. I mean, you just sit here and think about it. I mean, it's crazy that we're even sitting here in the basement of our house. Yeah, we have a house. That's kind of amazing. I know. Um, Well, okay, the question was the election. I was devastated devastated so I am part of the executive leadership team at my workplace and uh, 100% of the people that we serve are uh, women of color and their children and about 75% of my colleagues are women of color and I did not want to get out of bed that morning Hmm. Um, and not not because Hillary lost but because Trump won Um, because I serve women and because in particular I serve women of color, um, Trump to me, uh, was just a huge blow personally and politically and in our work. And so, uh, yeah, I pried myself out of bed and the first thing that I had to do was tell my daughter who was just upset and she said, so wisely she's like but mom he's mean he says awful things to people yeah yeah and that for me was personally sad but then to have to go into work and just the the tenor of the day was just tearful you know people were just really upset and sad um you know and then i think what's been really hard for me is that as a white woman who has dedicated 25 years to intercultural relationships and really expanding my worldview is that feeling of not having a space anymore because Mm. Mm. um, I'm not sure that anyone in my family votes the way that I vote, um, which is neither here nor there, but as as the year has unfolded and as conversations have happened and as Facebook has happened in different things to see the chasm between my family and I in terms of what is important and what is valuable and who is important and who is valuable um, has been a really difficult thing to accept, to accept that Mm. my family of origin, um, 
we really, in terms of our worldview and what we see is important in the world is completely different. And I know that we all call on the name Jesus, um, but the way that that is lived out and what that means in our lives is very, very different. And so, um, you know, and on the flip side, you know, uh, 75% of my world is mostly African-American and, you know, my friends are African-American. One, my best friend is from Sri Lanka. Originally, not really. She's from England uh, and then came to the United States. But, you know, so my my inner circle are people of color and so to but I will never be a person of color you know and my experience shows me that um yeah that I don't necessarily really belong anywhere which is a sad thing for me but it's also something that I think that Jesus talks to very specifically you know that uh in order to follow him you'll give up things and there will be sacrifices along the way. And that often includes family. Um, and so mm. even though I'm not necessarily like estranged from my family per se, um, we certainly aren't close and we certainly don't have a lot of really important conversations because yeah. we're on such different pages. And what was that? I mean, again, just the, the transition, like, I mean, cause I know when we first met <laughs> you were, uh, Voting for Bush. Yes, sir, I was. Oh, man. I mean, I've had people on here before. I mean, I had somebody on here who said, you know, they voted for the McCain, uh, what's her name, ticket in 08, uh, but it's now different. So, I mean, what from that point to now, what what are some of the things, the key points that have, that have shifted for you in regards, you know, going politically? Because I remember some of the conversations we would have in regards to just, you know, in fact, that was my mentor at the time. When I first met you and brought you, I was like, oh, I met somebody. He even asked me, and I lied to him. Cause he's like, is she a Democrat? And I was like, yeah, but I knew you were at the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, truthfully, I didn't, I mean, I didn't know any Democrats and I wasn't friends with any Democrats, um, until I met you because I didn't, because politics is something that we just don't talk about in society in general. And like, because yeah. I wasn't an insider in a culture other than my own, like all I knew was Republican Christianity. Like that's all I knew. So I voted at that point. What was my conscience? Sure. And so, you know, then the great thing about intercultural relationships is that it pushes you to see things from other perspectives. Like yeah. if you actually yeah. love someone and you actually care about them, whether it's a marriage partner or a friend or whatever, like you put yourself in their position and when they're talking, you're open minded. And so, you know, like I just couldn't get away from the fact that like, wait a minute, why is everyone in my world have a different point of view? Um, and, you know, and you were influential with that over time as well, because I was open to you and your experience and what life was like for you. You know, I realized that abortion wasn't the only ticket item. You know, I happened to... Um, think that life is incredibly valuable um, but it's no longer the only issue for me it's no longer um, you know the the bigger issues come into effect of like you know what is somebody's ability to care for a child you know how do we find ourselves when we're in difficult situations you know do we love women only because they give birth or do we love them regardless of whatever their situation is you know, and so those were all conversations that, frankly, I never had the privilege to have until meeting people from other cultures because it just wasn't a part of any conversation that I had. Like, I didn't I didn't know any Democrats, you know, right. and now, truthfully, like, I'm not a card carrying Democrat and I'm not a card carrying Republican. I vote my conscience and. But it's not limited to just one issue on either side. It yeah. really comes down to thoughtful, you know, who's going to love the most amount of people. Truthfully, that's how I vote. No, absolutely. Well, and the, the, the reverse of that, I mean, I think as you talk about, you know, I was influential, you were influential because I came from 
a very fundamental and rigid background. I mean, I still remember, I joke about it now. I can joke about it now, but, you know, being out in front of the, it was either Hollywood video or Blockbuster video. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a Seventh Day Adventist at the time. We'd barely been married, I don't know, a couple months. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember this one. This is oh, a good one. Man. You know, and I'm sitting out there because I'd only been taught rules and religion and not the actual breadth and depth of what it means to be spiritual, to be engaged with God in a relationship. It was just rules. And if you do these rules and keep them, then you're going to be okay. And I remember sitting there and you were like, why are we sitting out here? <laughs> and I was like, well, the sun hasn't set yet. And it was a Saturday evening. Sun hasn't set yet. And, you know, I can't go in until we, you know, until it sets so that we can, um, you know, go in. I don't want to break the Sabbath, you know, and I remember that whole conversation. It was more than a conversation. We, I think it got heated. I think it got a little heated. Well, it was heated because I so firmly believe in the expansive hugeness of God's love that the thought that two minutes would make God happy or not happy just flabbergasted me. Mm. You know, I think that was the beginning of you and I really debating freedom in Christ. And that yeah. is something that I yeah. refuse to let go is that, yeah. you know, Christ saves us to set us free, not to make us more restricted. And it's free to love, free to engage, free to explore, free to make mistakes, all of those different things, because his love is big enough to rescue us from whatever mm. disasters we create for ourselves. Well, and I and I was just never taught that, you know, um, I was just it was taught rules and was taught to do this, you know, do that for God. Um, you know, fast forwarding, you know, and, you know, we're we're here. We have a daughter. Um, parents have moved in. Um, how have you negotiated just some of those the, the race relations? What, in other words, what's it like then for you being a white woman, working predominant, still working in predominantly African American communities? You come home, you, you got a husband who, who's racially black, ethnically Afro Latino. Um, what what does that mean? What does that in, that that engagement and you know look like? You know, particularly because I know there are a lot of white women progressives who are out there doing work what does that look like you know is relocate are the ccda three r's still the thing relocation redistribution reconciliation what are your thoughts on that i hope that makes sense man it's so good i wouldn't have it any other way okay um i think my experience of life is so much more engaging and meaningful and rich because I because I'm not just doing the same thing all the time I'm constantly being pushed to communicate in new and different ways um, at the same time it can feel really lonely I mean there are days when you know my family doesn't get me you know I go to work and you know there will be folks who don't get me there you know, and, and conversely, I don't get them either. So, I mean, to be fair, there's a lot of not understanding one another. But for the most part, it's fantastic because I have, you know, uh, you and Mahalia are amazing partners to be doing life with. But then also I have a really rich community of friends and, you know, our church home and different things. But, you know, there are days when it's like I feel a little bit out there without my people per se who are like me and I think that's something that I've had to let go of in my faith is the likeness you know it's mm. like I've embraced the otherness um which is a process I mean some days I do a good job at it and other days it's a really lonely feeling but um I think embracing the other only enriches my experience of God hmm yeah well, and, you know, I mean, I know there's, you know, like I said, you know, when it, when it comes to, I don't know, cross-cultural, however people want to, you know, I guess the words now is intercultural, you know, and what that looks like. I mean, I know it's 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 upped a little bit now, especially with the new, you know, the new presidency and administration, 81% of white evangelicals voting for, I mean, I mean, let me ask you this. I mean, do you identify still as, as, as an evangelical? And this is, I mean, this is a genuine question. You know, like, I'm not, yes and no. I mean, truthfully, the label doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Just like, I don't know. 
Labels don't mean a whole lot to me at this point in my life. However, I definitely have distanced myself from evangelicals. Like, I certainly wouldn't go around announcing that. And I certainly am willing to explore other ways of talking about it. I mean, I'm still myself. Me, Emily, I haven't changed in terms of what I believe and however I want to label it. You know, that I feel like is in limbo. But, um, But yeah, evangelicals, in my opinion, at this point have really lost a lot of credibility. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know I've mentioned that a whole bunch of times just here on the show and just in conversations, you know, you and I have. Um, I mean, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, because I mean, there's so much. And I'm even just like scrambling through my head like, oh, man, what can I ask? Because there's so many things, I think, that you have done just for me, I know, and, you know, helping and walking me through, again, my own theological journey, um, my own just kind of dealings with, um, God and wrestling with certain things, and you know, I think we're in a we're we're in a we're in a good spot, despite what's happening nationally. I think we're in a good spot from a marital perspective. I mean, you know, I've made no bones about it. You know, I go to therapy. You know, I'm on Zoloft. I think it's Zoloft or one of those one of those depression anxiety medications. Um, and you know, it works. It works. And thank God. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's a good spot to be in. It's taken a long time, and I know we're still figuring stuff out. By no means is it perfect. Um, I mean, I guess everybody says that, right? Oh, our marriage is not perfect, you know. And I don't. And I'm not saying that like that. I'm like, I genuinely mean it's like not perfect. I mean, there's we talk about it all the time with Mahalia in the room, and just you know some of the dynamics that pop out between. Wait, we have dynamics. <laughs> yeah. Us? What? Yes, all that familyness that comes out and. You know, she'll tell me something different than she tells you, and then oh man, and then and then I think what gets me though, I think is the interactions, the different responses that you get as a parent than I get as as a dad, as a man. You know, even the situation we had to deal with the other day with a parent, it's like I'm having a conversation with her, and it's just I'm sure it went completely, it would it would have gone completely different had it been you who had engaged. I don't know if you want to talk about that, just being a mom being married interracially, but then having a kid and all the expectations that go on women in terms of being a mom and, and being, you know, being, you know, in, in, in an environment that, you know, that's got some, it's got a decent school. So it's not, it's not like the suburbs, but it's like, how do you, how do you navigate some of those ways and spaces? Yeah. Well, I mean, being a woman, I mean, half the people listening to this at least are women, I would imagine. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So they know what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, the great thing about being in your 40s is that you kind of care less about what people think about you, um, which (laughs) is great on the one hand. um, But it takes a long time to get there because, frankly, you know, I mean... uh, Shortly before my 40th birthday, I I cut my hair very short, um, mostly because I got tired of the catcalls and I got tired of being sexually harassed on a daily basis. Um, And particularly working on the west side of Chicago, you know, um, like, let me just tell you, cutting your hair (laughs) cuts down the catcalls a lot. And, you know, so, yeah, being a woman, I mean, it's it's complicated. I mean, I think, I think it's part of why we get each other so much is because I can relate to the discrimination and the challenges you face as a man who looks black, even though you're black and Mexican. Um, but as a woman, you know, your voice is just not taken as seriously, you know, you're seen as hysterical or pushy or aggressive or whatever. And frankly, you know, my personality lends itself to those things anyway. I mean, I am assertive. I am a leader. You know, I do know what I believe. I'm not necessarily looking for a ton of affirmation from lots of different people because I have a very strong sense of identity. But in terms of parenting, you know, gosh, it's just exhausting. (laughs) I mean, not that parenting is, but all the things that come along with it. Now, granted, I only have a girl. I have three godsons who are grown men now at this point. So, um you know, I got some experience with them when they were very little. Um, but now, you know, being the mother of a daughter and just watching how all of the nuances and expectations and yeah, yeah. 
things play out, you know, and how mom, like you're expected as the mom to step in and fix everything and to make it right and to be the one who's the go between and whatever. And I mean, I remember begging you last year and being like, look, I need to completely check out of this drama because it is exhausting me. And especially being a white mom married to a black dad, having a mixed child, you know, let's be honest, like the black moms can't stand me. You know, because I took one of the good men and I get that. Like, I get the frustration, you know, on a, on a cognitive level. Granted, I'll never be able to understand it from, you know, from an African-American woman's perspective. But I can appreciate the frustration, you know, but it does get exhausting putting up with the the reactions when I'm just a mom. I'm just a woman dropping my kid off at school, too. And, you know, having people be irate and crazy does get frustrating after time <laughs> well not even after time let's be honest <laughs> right Any, anytime it happens it's frustrating well i mean and speaking on that i mean i you know they had the whole me too campaign and well it wasn't even a campaign it was a hashtag and then you know there's still people you know talking about that right now and you know and you posted that i don't know if you wanted to share a little bit on on that um and what that you know meant for you and particularly because we do we talk a lot about this being the the intersections right it's like Women, being woman, being white, being man, being black, you know, what does that mean? Different socioeconomics, different background, all those, all those, you know, interesting intersections. And so what, what, you know, what was, what has that been like? And what, what, what goes on with that? I mean, I've been present for some of those nasty inter- interactions and, and for others I haven't. And, and I'm just curious, particularly the ones that happen when I'm not around. I mean, I know there was some dude who was talking smack to y'all the other day on the tennis court, you know. Um, and I always hear about this stuff and I'm just like, why didn't this stuff happen? <laughs> I'm standing right there, but. Cause it never happens when right. a man is standing there. Yeah, That's yeah. just the way it goes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, it's so much a part of life and frankly, you know, okay. So speaking from a cultural perspective, growing up in the suburbs with white men, you know, I'm a curvy woman you know, at the time I had really long, dark hair, but you know, like that's not a thing for white guys. Right. So like, I, I don't ever remember being sexually harassed until I moved into the city. And then it was a daily, multiple times a day occurrence. I mean, you would just step outside your door, um, and the cat calls would come, the propositions would come, the nasty comments would come, you know, the invitations to go behind the building and do things would come. I mean, and that's not to say that it didn't happen with, with white men. I just think that it, I didn't understand it at the time. There were expectations. There were expectations that you would be skinny and that you would act a certain way and that you would please the white men because that's what you're supposed to do in white culture and that you're supposed to be, you know, a kind, generous woman who is dying to be a mother. Like that is the the gold <laughs> standard at least at the time in the 80s and 90s so I got that those messages very clearly and I distinctly remember in my at the end of my 30s I was like I am tired of being harassed on a daily basis and so as a way to empower myself you know I cut all my hair off because I was just tired of it I was tired of men interacting with me sexually yeah without an invitation yeah and so to me it was like you know what I'm going to take my power back and you know it was fascinating because you know all the men in my life with the exception of you were like devastated and made yeah. all these comments and just went on and on <laughs> about my hair and I and, yeah. and I think that's when it really confirmed to me that okay you think that my appearance is for your pleasure and that to me is twisted like my body mm. is for me Yes, I gave birth to somebody. Yes, I share my body with you, whatever. But my body is not for other people's consumption. They're visual criticisms. They're, you know, you know, and growing up with that subtle message, that subtle, you know, message in white suburban Christianity that, well, you know what? You have to dress like a lady and you don't want your bra straps to show and you want to make sure that you keep your breasts mm-hmm. covered. And, right. you know, all this pressure on women to not attract attention when P.S. That's how men are wired. So, you know, just carrying around all of this responsibility for other people's 
thoughts and actions. And that is one thing in my 40s that I have released myself from. I am not responsible for men's reactions to me. Thank God. (laughs) There you go. Man, I mean, and, you know, I say this a lot. I mean, but, you know, being a man, you know, you just don't. These are just, again, things that you don't even think about. Right. You know, cat calls and physically being harassed. Um, of course, men get that. Of course, men, you know, it, men have been raped. I mean, but the but the the you see horror movies, you see people who are like I remember that movie that the new M. Night Shyamalan that was on, you know, split personality It's like the guy's going after women. He's not going after other men. He's going after women. And so women are targeted even in a, a, a fantasy place like a movie. But you know, nevertheless, it's like there's so much. And so having been raised by two women, having a daughter being married it's like man that's some crazy stuff man it is and it's exhausting i mean i any woman listening to this will be able to relate it's exhausting to feel like you're on guard you never know what somebody's gonna say to you you know and to feel like you're less than and that your existence is for somebody else. And I think I think that's one of the real problems in the church is the whole idea, you know, that we focus on woman as the help meet. You know, it's like, oh, the you help know, meet or help me. Well, or both <laughs> depending on how you want to translate it. Um, you know, it's one of the real frustrations for me because, you know, what I was taught is that, you know, the ultimate thing in a woman's life is to be a wife and a mother and as satisfying as those things are they are not the ultimate Mm. it's just not I mean and let's keep in mind the fact that you know over half of the population of women in the world are not married so to say that those are the only things that are important I mean you're leaving out half of the population which is ridiculous you know and I think that as a woman gosh I look back and what I wish the evangelical church would have said to me instead of saying you know your role is to be supportive and gracious and motherly and all those things yes say all of those things but then also say that you're called to lead and you're powerful and you have a voice and God has gifted you and not just gifted you with hospitality even though that's a great gift you know, but that God has gifted women in other ways. And I feel like that was one of the real misses in my Christian education mm-hmm. is that, you know, um, I, yeah. And I think that's also a very white Christian miss because in the African American church, women are slaying it and they are bringing it all day, every day, all the time and yeah. are encouraged yeah. to do so, you know. And so that was part of my f- formation in, in my Christian journey was to watch powerful African-American women and powerful Latino women who were powerful leaders and made no bones about it. Yeah. Um, and that was really transformational for me. Hmm. Man. Um, I guess here in the last man, it's hard to believe, you know, we've been going 46 minutes. Um, I, I mean, as you're thinking about now and where we're at moving forward and you work for a great organization doing great things here um what do you think what do you think the future looks like what do you what do you what do you hope for what are things that you think about i mean i know we talk about this all the time but what are what are some of the things that you emily white hodge um hope for in you know for mahalia i mean i know i have some thoughts but it's like I don't know. I yeah. I, I would just love to hear like you know as you're thinking about the next five years and you know I mean I think about it. It's like man, okay, so she's gonna turn eleven this year, and then we got you know six years, seven years, and then you know it's like eighteen. It's like oh man. So what does that look like for you? What are you hopeful for now? Well, for her, I hope that she lives into her giftedness. I mean clearly she has passion clearly she has a voice clearly she has strengths and I hope that she develops those um in terms of like nationally and personally um I hope that we live into the promises of God I mean that's what I hope for I hope that we're able to break through the barriers that divide us so radically. I mean, I would hope that at some point I would get 
closer and be able to have more robust conversations with my family around some of these really important things, just as I know lots of other people in the country are feeling conflicted with their families. You know, at the same time, the hope that I have is not a hope for the United States. You know, I mean, I feel like the United States is not God's chosen people. (laughs) We are one of, one of many of God's chosen people. And so for me, the hope is still Jesus. The hope is still heaven. The hope is still to live a life worthy yeah. of the calling. And the hope is to personally continue to live my passion and regardless of the outcome. Because frankly, I can't control the outcome. But, yeah, you know, uh when more crazy news comes out and I hear what our president has said and am deeply offended, you know, I double down. I go to work and I do the best that I can on the west side of Chicago because I'm like, that's where I can make a difference. So that's what I do. Yeah. This has been great. Thanks. Thanks for coming down to the lab. Yes. That you put together. You actually put this together. I remember coming back from some trip and was like, you did it so yep thank you for setting it up you're welcome it's good stuff well thank you for coming on um we'll get you back on there'll be more hot issues to discuss and go about in and all that good stuff right on all right all right all righty oh where can it's can anybody find you let's say folks are trying to look for you and uh what uh yeah i always ask that as well that's the always the the outro question where can they find me yeah well, I'm an introvert, so I don't know if I want to be found. <laughs> yeah, if yeah. you're really serious about contacting me and having a deeper conversation and not just chit chat, because I don't care much for chit chat. Yeah. But if you actually want to go in on some conversations, you know, find Dan and Dan will find me. <laughs> there we Let's go. Let's just say it that way. There we go. That's what I'm talking about. All right. Cool. Well, thanks again. Love I, you, babe. I love you, too. <laughs> well what'd y'all think great conversation right (laughs) man i tell you i told you i told you she had some good stuff to say i told you she's smart she's brilliant oh my goodness well i won't keep y'all but i just wanted to end on a few things uh one i think it's important i think relationships are important i still believe in that i still believe that those are key i think those are key in functioning um, especially in this contentious sociopolitical era and that we find ourselves in. I think that it's important to be in that in that trench eyeball to eyeball and ask, like, what does what does all this mean? What is all this how does all this connect? What is a theology in this? What is the theology of racism? I mean, in the stuff here's the thing. None of this stuff is as easy as it's mapped out to be. I mean, I think that's what gets me, right? I mean, I think oftentimes we think we hear, you know, we we, we hear somebody great at a, at, a, at a conference or or we, you know, we've read some theoretical book or whatever. And I, hey, I love theory. I'm, I, I love it to death. But at the end of the day, words on a paper are not a relationship. They, it, things get messy <laughs> when you involve people. And I want to be sure not to fall in love with ideas or theologies or ideologies. I want to make sure... I'm in love with the with the right person. Well, obviously my wife. Uh, I want to make sure I'm pursuing God. I want to make sure I'm connected to that type of environment. So, but it gets messy, right? It gets messy, and so I think it's important that we that we get in that mess. I think the messier it gets, the more there's an opportunity and a chance for God to do what God is going to do. I really do believe that. I think when things are neat and nice and just kind of like all prissy and whatever you want to call it, I think it didn't, then it just, then, then it becomes, then you become complacent. Oh, well, it's always like this. Oh, this is how it should be. It's kind of like, you know, a crackhead. You get that first hit and you're always chasing that hit. And it's almost like, okay, oh, I got it real nice and I'm always chasing that. You know, America right now is chasing that that hit of the 50s, right? They're chasing that hit of, uh, you know, when white supremacy was 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 at a grandstand high. So I think the messiness is can produce growth. Um, and in, particularly in the micro, when you involve people, you know, relationships like, you know, the one I'm talking about right now with my wife, I think it, it, it involves a, a, a commitment and a sacrifice every day. So. 
Hopefully you enjoyed it. Hopefully you uh, got something. I look forward to your comments and feedback. Again, what does a white allyship look like? Uh, again, I'm interviewing my wife. I'm, I'm putting putting it out there and trying to, you know, talk about those things because, again, this is profane faith. And part of that, again, is these are things that, you know, folks normally don't necessarily talk about and all the messiness and intricacies that come out because it's never, never as neat as we always map it out to be. Never. So we just got to kind of get over that, right, because it's never going to be that way. So. Y'all, thanks for listening. Appreciate it again. Go out and like, comment. You know what would really help, too, on iTunes is just a review. If you're loving this, go and just give a brother a review. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, continue your subscription uh, questions. You can always direct those towards me um, as well. You can go to whitehodge.com, drop me a line. Um, that would be great. All those things are interlinked. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, all of those good things. Love to hear from you because uh, at the end of the day, I think those conversations do matter. Now, here's the thing. I am a big face-to-face. Look, I'm a Gen Xers, y'all. I was born in the early 70s, so I like face-to-face. <laughs> so if, if you're in the Chicagoland area or if we, if, you know, we plan to be at the same conference or something like that, I would love to sit down face-to-face, belly-to-belly because, you know, I'm a little fat. <laughs> and so uh, I'd love to do that and just have a conversation. That cool? That work out? All right, y'all. We're going to keep going on on this. We're going to keep going on. So we will see you soon in a week or so here with the next one on white allyship, right? What does that even mean, right? What does that even come to? We should have a show on that, too. So we'll we'll probably put one like that together. Yeah, that sounds good. All right, y'all. I'll see y'all next week. It's not just me coming to help you because you're a Latino kid. You're a black kid. No, it's, it's, you are Davon, you are beautiful, you, mm. you're not just one of many, you're special, and I think, to be that person is such an honor in somebody's life, to be witness to what God is doing in somebody's life is a gift to you, you know? And to, what I would say is if you have the opportunity to sit eyeball to eyeball and to hear somebody's story and to see Jesus through their eyes and to experience Jesus through their eyes, it doesn't get any better than that. If it's your own kid, if it's a kid down the street, kid in the other neighborhood, whoever it is, eyeball to eyeball is a really good thing. That's what I think.